to the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. So, I'm hearing this story that scientists are going to be using this particle smasher in Geneva, Switzerland, and people were really deathly afraid of the possibility it would create miniature black holes. What they want to do here, of course, is to try to duplicate on a miniaturized scale the Big Bang. Uh, doesn't Dolly Parton know about that? <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, that was bad. I, I I meant to say Cindy McCain. Oh, I'm 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 so sorry. No political I, I, humor. I, oh, Don't yeah, Sarah no. Palin. No, I was actually going to mention Bristol Palin, the one who's pregnant. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, that's I, another I show. Yeah, that is another show. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, right. So we have this new scientific uh, study up. Yes, and they apparently tried the first beam the other day. Yeah, so apparently we're still here, Gene. They turned on the uh, the super collider to test it, and uh, the world did not implode. We're still here. Isn't it strange how you have all these things going on, and they always say, the world will implode. And guess what? Well, yeah, right? The impending news of its demise, uh, notwithstanding, the world is still standing here. And or so spinning is Steve here, Jobs, I say. by the way. Steve Jobs That's is still correct. here. He said the ah. impending rumors of his demise are also wrong. So the world did not end. Nope. It probably won't end in 2012 unless we do something drastic to hasten that. Yeah, there won't be anything. I think I think George Snorri is going to be very disappointed in December of that year. Does he believe in this? Yes, he does. Oh. Don't ask me why I know this. I just, I know this. You know yeah, he, what he's thinking. Uh, you never know what he's thinking. So, says, so he says. He looks well, at the ratings. Not, it's like, you know, politicians yeah. look at polls to see what particular point of view they should have. Like they said that Bill Clinton, President Clinton, used to do that before he came out with an opinion. Well, maybe George Snorri does that. Seriously, I had another fascinating incident the other day. A guy named Dan calls me up out of the blue. And he got my phone number from the guy who manages one of the local kosher delis. Okay. <laughs> How does that work? What do you mean you got your number from a guy who manages what you have more than one local kosher deli in Phoenix? Really? We actually have a chain called Chompies. There are three of them, and they have this huge bakery where they bake bagels, which are sold in lots of other places, supermarkets and everything. And they have decent bagels, okay? Right. There are two quality levels for kosher delis. I think there is the New York style, the real one in New York City, you know, Second Avenue Deli, Carnegie Deli, the old-fashioned deli in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And there's the suburban deli that you find maybe out in Long Island and New York and New Jersey. Yeah. They come from Queens, the family that runs this deli, called Chompies, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Chompies, huh? Chompies. It's the Borensteins. Okay, Lovey and Louis Borenstein. Are the lovey, lovey, love, lovey, lovely yes. board scenes. Yes, they're from Queens, and they run this place, and it's pretty decent. Oh, okay, so Bruce, right. one of their managers, tells me about this guy named Dan. So Dan calls me, and he starts telling me, and I really couldn't understand this too well. He starts talking to me about the Phoenix Lights, that he saw UFOs prior to the Phoenix Lights. Suddenly he goes into this rant about 
using his fingers to generate kinetic energy. Using his fingers to generate kinetic energy. Okay. Now, I sent you some photos. I don't know if they made it to your mailbox, which supposedly were taken of him in a normal surrounding. And then you see this very bright, this very bright glare on him as if suddenly he's facing the sun, which is what I thought it was. Hmm. So he comes to my house and he brings this and he brings this woman who supposedly is one of his followers or something. I'm not sure. A follower? What a kind follower. of guy is this? I don't know. He has the power. Okay. So let's paint the picture. He comes into the studio here and we have a sliding door closet and there's a mirror that covers it. So he says, right. look in the mirror, and he takes his two fingers. They're separated maybe six inches apart. And he aligns them with each other, and he moves them back and forth. And he says, did you see that? And I say to him, did I see what? And he says, you have good vision or something like that. And I say, I sure do. You know, actually, ladies and gentlemen, I wear soft contact lenses. With the soft contact lenses, I have real 20-20 vision, okay? Oh, Everything is clear. Even at my age, I do not have any weird eye defects, detached retinas or cataracts or anything like that. My eyes are in decent shape. I saw nothing. After talking for a few more minutes, we went downstairs. Okay, went outside, and it's overcast, which is a very rare situation in the Phoenix area. And he says, let me show you something on a wider scale. And he does the routine with his fingers, and he says, you see that? And I said, no. He said, stand right behind me by a foot or two, okay? And I said, fine, show me the kinetic energy. And he says, sure, here. I saw nothing, ladies and gentlemen. I have no idea what he's uh, selling, but I ain't buying it. I don't know. I'm looking, I'm looking at the pictures right now. Okay. I believe the technical term would be squat. I see squat in these pictures. I think that's a fair thing to say. <laughs> you know, he's, he's pointing up to the sky. All right, and what is he claiming he's doing? I don't get it. He's claiming that this energy is coming from his fingers, and this energy is filling the skies with brightness. Filling the skies with brightness? Are yes, you that's why you see one picture being brighter than the other. Well, uh, hold on. Did you take these pictures? No, I did not. He gave All them right. to me on a CD. I see. So, okay. so it, what I, you see is what I got. All right. So I'm looking at these pictures... And we got the guy holding his hand out against a fairly uh, clear blue sky with the uh, expected amount of gradient going down into the into the background. And then we see an overall exposure shift, dramatically brightening the sky, the ground, him, his uh, little pullover that he's wearing, his hair, his hand, everything has been brightened by the same exact amount. I thought the sun was shining on him or something like that. It looks to me like a different, just a, a, a different exposure, Gene. Okay. okay. But there is absolutely nothing here of any, how do I say this, interest, paranormal uh, potential, nothing, zero, squat. Self-deluded? Well, is he from Arizona? Is he from Phoenix? I think he is, yes. And he's been living there for a while, right? Yes. He's well, a fellow in his late 30s. Yeah. So it's sort of like Florida, Gene. If you spend enough time in the broiling sun, your mind will be baked like a scone. And okay, I now I've been that, here, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Right. I have been in Arizona since 1993, 15 years. Yeah. So you've now explained what my problem really is. <laughs> you like how I did that? Very oh, right I knew you had subtle. a dig in there. Yeah. I knew that there was a dig coming. 
No, well, but bottom line, that this guy's got nothing. He's 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 cuckoo. Right. Next. I think he was kind of disappointed that I didn't buy this routine. Maybe he thought that I would somehow see this illusion that he was going to perpetrate on me. And I didn't know what to think because he wasn't terribly clear about what he was trying to do or yeah. what he yeah. thinks he was trying to do and what his specific powers were. And he said, you know, you're going to have a great show here if you... If you cover this, and I said, well... He wanted to be on the show? He wanted to be on the show after uh, demonstrating his power. But how would he expect me to put him on the show if he couldn't demonstrate his power to me? Gene, you know, I may be for, stupid, but I'm not yeah, that no. stupid. No, Gene, this is where you give the guy a glass of water. You say, use your fingers to turn this into a chocolate egg cream, and we've got something to talk about. Okay. <laughs> I prefer gold, by the way. Gold what? I understand gold coins right now are exacting oh. a pretty decent price with the state of the economy. Yeah, but you see, you want to turn a liquid into a metal. I'm happy with the guy turning a liquid into another liquid. Much less effort, you see. Well, you mean, for example, if I wanted a Diet Coke, I say, okay, give me a Diet Coke from this water. And the water here in Arizona is pretty dirty, you know. People do not yeah, drink nasty. tap yeah. water here. They drink bottled water, you know, which comes from yeah. other city taps. You know, yeah. it's not as if yeah. the Nestle water or the DeSanti water is necessarily not from a tap, but it's filtered. Okay, right. it's given reverse osmosis and all that other stuff. Yeah. And okay, if he would convert that to Diet Coke, I'd be a believer. If he converted that to Gatorade, I'm big on Gatorade, you know, because, you know, everything gets very dry here, hot and dry, and you want to kind of take care of the various things. Electrolytes. In your it electrolytes. has electrolytes. Yes, you have yeah. to reinvigorate your electrolytes. Uh -huh. And so I drink Gatorade. Now, if he converted water to Gatorade, even dirty water, I'd say that's fine. Okay. Yeah, I prefer sure. the gold coins, though. Gene, at this point, if he converted still water to carbonated water, to sparkling water, I'd be impressed. What is it with the soft thinking that's going on these days? Look, we're seeing this in the political arena. Certainly, since we started the show, we've always seen this in the paranormal arena. People just not really thinking critically. Look, I think I, we know where this comes from, but at this point, can we continue with this kind of very, very weak or, in many cases, non-existent logic? What did this guy think you were going to do? He came over, shows you these pictures that are obviously silly. What did he think the response would be? Oh, yeah, gee, look at that image where everything's been blown out and overexposed. Yes, you must be changing the luminosity of the sky with your fingers. Oh, yes, you are. Or a bad photographer. Or exactly. What is the response he was looking for? He was looking to come on the show to talk about the energy in his fingers, huh? He was going to have here his electrical fingers. Right. And he was here. Maybe he wanted to solve the energy crisis. You know, he sticks his fingers in the socket, and there it goes. <laughs> yeah, there goes his hair. Right, right. Maybe I mean, he was yeah. thinking the other direction, that instead of receiving the electricity, he generates it. You know, if we put like a 100 of these dams around the state of Arizona, we wouldn't need the nuclear power plant. We have a nuclear power plant here. We wouldn't need it. We just have Dan. Uh, Dan the electrical man. Sad. Dan the electric man. Yes. Uh, there was a movie, uh, by the way, back in the 1940s, a horror movie with the late Lon Chaney Jr. And he became a man who glowed in the dark at night. Okay? He developed he his power. Yeah, and his power fireflies. allowed him to touch people and kill them. With fireflies. He ate a bunch of fireflies. That was it? No, he went into and some kind of radiation generator that 
basically caused him to become electrified. Al Capone's electrified. <laughs> what are we talking about here? I don't know. You know what we're talking about? I got a press release about something called the International UFO Conference in West Yorkshire, England. And amongst the guests will be someone named Wing Commander Alan Turner, RAF retired, who had some interesting encounters with the strange and unknown. And we're mm. also bringing on board the person, I guess his sponsor or the person who is bringing him to our attention, Philip Mantle, UFO researcher Philip Mantle. And all that is going to come up next without carrots, salad, without water, without electrical spark generation. Carrot salad? How did you bring up carrot salad? You were telling me the other day that Steve Jobs is eating too much carrot salad. Is that paranormal? Maybe it is. No. That's just veganism. That's all. Coming up next on The Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of The Paracast is being brought to you by Audible.com. And you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right? You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. This offer only good for USA listeners. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk. Now, coming up later this year is something called the International UFO Conference, and I got a press release from UFO researcher Philip Mantle about someone by the name of Wing Commander Alan Turner, MBE, RAF retired, and we'll call him Alan from here on because I can't say all those titles together and that without making a mistake. Right, Alan? Absolutely. That's fine. Philip, how did you learn about the experience that Wing Commander Turner had encountered? I learned about um, Alan's uh, encounter at our conference last year. Uh, a colleague of mine by the name of, of David Beezer it was at the conference, and he, he thrust a piece of paper into my hand. I didn't have time to read it at the conference, so when it was over, I sat down and read it. And it was a brief account about the, the incidents in question that were witnessed by, uh, by Alan Turner. So I, I, I contacted Dave and said, well, this is really interesting. Do we have a contact for, for this gentleman? And I wrote to uh, Mr. Turner, and he replied, and we, we, we exchanged emails, and, and, and we took the story from there. Uh, so it was purely by chance. Okay, so at this point, Alan, when yep. they got in touch with you, can you tell us precisely what happened to you and when? Um, in terms of the incident or in terms of being contacted? Well, let's talk about the incident. Now, just okay. have a little bit of a background here. 
Now, this dates back to... 1971. 1971. Now, what were you doing in 1971? Okay. Uh, What you need to understand is that in the United Kingdom, uh, rather like other parts of America, there are things called area radar units, and they look at areas, not just airfields. And I was at Southern Radar in the south of England, uh, which looked after the whole of Wales, the southern counties and the southwest counties of England. We had a huge area. And in 1974, that unit closed and was subsumed by what you used to remember as West Drayton. Uh, it's a big air traffic control center, rather like uh, O'Hare and Chicago and, and, and those sort of uh, areas where they, they look over huge areas of land, not just an airfield. So we were looking, I could see on my radar, we could all see on our radar, uh, if you know the UK, from Cornwall, the tip of Cornwall, up to London, Heathrow, the Isle of Wight, we could see uh, the Channel, um, and we could see the French coast. And our area of responsibility was, if you like, a horizontal line drawn through the middle of England, the whole of Wales, and everything south of that, and, uh, and west of London. So it was a rather large area. We were a 24-hour operation. We would have anything up to eight controllers uh, and eight assistants on duty on watch, not all being used at the same time. On the day in question, it was July, the summer, in the afternoon, and there were three controllers on duty. Traffic was relatively light. So each controller would have had an assistant. So that means there are six people. And then on the military side, we would have the coordinator and the allocator, each with an assistant. So that's another four pairs of eyes. That's ten. And then there was me, the supervisor, with my junior NCO. That's twelve. Included in the same operations room were four civilians, civilian controllers. We, we worked together. Um, we coordinated everything. We used the same equipment. So there were... 15, 16 pairs of eyes. Now, the first I knew that there was something untoward was when one of the boys said, and I won't use his language, uh, what is that? Um, There was consternation throughout the ops room. And as a supervisor, it was my responsibility to go and see what was going on and, if you like, direct operations. Um, There was the most unusual set of circumstances on the radar and bear in mind every single person in that ops room um, was well aware of what air traffic looked like um, and the returns on the radar uh, and so they all realized that there was something very unusual if you don't know the geography of the uk it's rather difficult to explain but i suppose something in the region of 40 50 miles southwest of Heathrow, roughly, Salisbury Plain Danger area. And now Heathrow is the major airport in London. Yeah, that, that is there, but I, I'm trying to give you a picture of where things sure, started happening. Sure. So if you know where Heathrow is, then southwest of that by 40, 50 miles, um, these blips, the radar returns, started to appear. Now, at that distance from the radar head, we would expect to see stuff coming in to radar cover at about 3,000 feet, and of course, that's what was happening. And a blip would track southeast at a very steady rate, and after about six miles, another blip would appear. 
and then another blip, and then another blip. And it went on for 25 minutes or so, and so we had probably about seven blips all together, each following the same track, each keeping the same speed, each keeping the same distance. And uh, what the devil's that? So I got the height finder onto it, and I discovered that they were coming into cover at 3,000 feet, and when they disappeared about 35 miles later on, they were in excess of 60,000 feet. And the height finders we were using in those days couldn't read beyond 60,000. So the rate of climb was phenomenal. And it went on, as I said, for 25 minutes, and we didn't know what, what was going on. It was certainly not an exercise because there were the United States Air Force at Upper Hayford and Bent Waters and Woodbridge and so on. And they did have exercises on sometimes and occasionally the U-2 would come in. And as a supervisor, I would get a phone call from the ops officer uh, at the U.S. Air Force Base. And he would give me a code word and I would know exactly what was going on. Nothing like that happened. So we then started to look around and see what else was going on. So I spoke to the controllers at uh, Heathrow, and they had two radars, as we did, quite different radars, and they were seeing the same thing. Alan, a quick question for you. Sure. Before you continue, uh, I just want to ask you some just some short questions. When you say you saw these uh, targets appearing on the radar, are we talking about them just appearing like in the middle of the radar screen, or were they coming from off-screen, with no, the, well, we don't the, know. They, they, they came from. Uh, they came. They emanated from this. They came from the same point each time. Oh, so they could have been dropping uh, down. In other words. No, 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 no. If you understand radar, uh, radar sends a pulse out, and radar has an envelope below which you won't see a blip. Right. And above which you won't see a blip. So it isn't until it comes into cover. It's very difficult to explain the words, uh, but it's it's like a. If you wave your hand around, as radar does in a circle, uh, the power of your hand is the, the radar cover. And underneath that, you won't see anything unless it penetrates the shape and size of the palm of your hand, well, which I, is really yeah. what the, the radar is. So I guess so what I'm words, no. yeah. Yeah, but these things were appearing from the same place, and they were disappearing 35 miles later on. Did they, having, did they, were they multiple targets were on the radar simultaneously? Yeah, absolutely. They said there were seven at any one time. One appeared, and, yeah. and then it would go about six miles. Then another one would appear behind it, and then another one, and then another one. And there were about seven. There must have been 35 to 40 items which reflected a radio pulse. Now, what that was, I don't know. Were they in um, any sort of formation? They were lying stone. They were six miles spaced. They were keeping the same spacing, the same speed, the mm. same rate of climb. Understood. There were what? seven on the screen at any one time, each traveling in a southeasterly direction. At, at what velocity? About 250, 300 miles an hour. Okay. But the rate of climb was phenomenal. And the only aircraft in those days would have been the Lightning aircraft, which was a... A twin-engined uh, interceptor uh, with a, uh, an endurance of about an hour, unless it went into reheat, and then it was even less than that. Mm -hmm. um, and that number of aircraft, if anybody had uh, produced those aircraft, uh, they would have had to come from not just the UK, but from Germany as well, where they were based. 
and I don't believe there's a, uh, an air defence commander of the United Kingdom that would have um, even considered doing such a, a tactical mistake as that, because those aircraft in those days were um, on quick reaction alert to intercept former Warsaw Pact Bear Bison aircraft who used to intrude in UK air, air defence region. Let me ask um, you something, so those, those aircraft had a reason for existence, and I doubt very much that they were what was what we saw on radar, uh, plus the fact that um, they made such an awful lot of noise with 35 or 40 of those aircraft. Don't tell me Joe Public wouldn't have heard them, because they would. Okay, you saw this on the radar. Was there a simultaneous visual sighting of whatever this was? There, there, it was a purely radar until uh, after about five minutes or so, I checked to see what was being controlled by the unit. And one of the lads had um, a couple of Canberra bombers, twin-engine bombers, uh, coming back from Germany. Um, we checked up their fuel endurance. Uh, one of them had to go back home, and the other one said he had half an hour. So I took control of it, and I told him what was going on, and I vectored him onto a uh, reciprocal heading about half a mile to the side of where these blips were appearing. And I did it twice, and eventually he said, look, I'm good victim to Charlie. It's aviation parlance where I can see everything. He said, put me closer. So I pointed in the direction, terminated service, because you can't put two blips in, in confliction like that. Um, and he and his navigator, well, the pilot was jittery. I mean, he said, I don't know what that was. It was climbing like the clappers. I've got it on my radar. I didn't see it visually, but it was on my radar. Now, if, you, if we take this also, the radar, there were two different radars at, at Southern. There was the Type 18 and the Type 264, different frequencies. The radars that they had at Heathrow were different yet again. The radars that they had at Nita's Head were the, I think, the 82 and the 84 in those days, different yet again, technically. And then there was the Canberra radar different to the ground radars in terms of frequency and so on. So there were seven different radars, and in my certain knowledge, at least 16 pairs of eyes, discounting Heathrow, the, the Canberra pilot, the navigator, and the Nitaset people, that saw all this. What was the uh, feeling in the room when this was going on? Were people, uh, were people stressed out about this? Yeah. They, they were wiped out. They didn't know what it was. Because If you're an air traffic controller, you know what you're seeing, generally speaking. But this was so unusual. Uh, none of the guys there, or on the girls, had ever seen anything like this before. Um, they just didn't have a clue. Question for you then, Alan. Um, you're seeing this on the radio, this radar. This is going on for, for more than just a few minutes. Was there any process to have commercial or civilian aviation avoid the trajectory these things were in? No, they were in the open FIR, the open flight information region. They were not conflicting with anything. They certainly weren't in controlled airspace, as we call it. They were, like anybody else, general aviation in the UK, entitled to be there as long as they uh, conform to the rules of the air. Um, but these were, it, it was, <laughs> I, you know, even today, I just don't understand it. Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. 
If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time. Because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. In a world where UFO conventions are completely, utterly boring, come something new from a whole bunch of people who are trying to do something new. The Culture of Contact 2008 UFO Festival. It is reality. Cyrus, David Bassett. David Biedney. Dr. William J. Burns. David Hatcher Childress. Patricia Corbett. Richard Dolan. Bud Hopkins. Ellen Blagno. Michael Manuel. Melissa Reed. Jeff Ritzman. Giorgio Sukalos. <laughs> Jeremy Faney. And Farrier Duzo. Special presentation. By Combustive Motor Corporation. Masahiro Kata. And the world premiere of the silent but deadly truth pollution of truth. For more information and to order tickets, please visit www.cultureofcontact.com. <laughs> Once again, that's www.cultureofcontact.com. Card subject to change, you could be screwed financially, probably not though. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We're talking to Wing Commander Alan Turner, MBE, RAF retired, and we'll just call him Alan. And Philip Mantle, and we'll be talking more with Philip as we progress and his reaction to this. David? Was there any kind of cross-corroboration of the sighting with other traffic control towers? No, no, no control towers because they don't have the range of the radar either. Our, our radar was, uh, the range was around about 250 miles. I see. Uh, a, a, an airfield radar would be no more than 30 or 40. So we did not involve airfields. When I say we used Heathrow, they were sufficiently close to have been able to see it with their radar. And they did? Certainly the fighter controllers would have been as well. Right. But And they did see it then? Oh, yes. Without any doubt. All right. So there's corroboration from them that indeed this was, this was going on. So how did this entire episode essentially end? Well, uh, it finished after, as I said, about 35 minutes, and we were just wiped out with what we'd seen. We didn't know. Um, as the supervisor, I impounded, as I um, required to do, the radio tapes and the uh, videotapes of the radar. Air traffic throughout the world uh, records the ground-to-air and the ground-to-ground communications. Uh, it also records these days with videotape, uh, you know, the VHS, the, um, the, the, the radar picture. In those days, we took, uh, we had a thing called a Vinton camera, and that took a photograph every 15 seconds. The, the radars that we operated at Sopley, um, Southern Radar, were uh, geared to four reds a minute. So every 15 seconds, a photograph was taken of the picture, 
and we used that on for what used to be called AMS investigations or special incidents or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and the supervisor's responsibility was to impound the tape, in other words, lock it up. So we did that. It was sufficiently weird that uh, we were each relieved whilst we wrote our report when it was fresh in our mind. We gave it to the, the boss, the squad leader operations, and um, there was a system in those days, as probably still is, whereby um, that information is passed up the line. Certainly with an AMS, uh, now it's called a proximity hazard warning or something, there is a system. Well, we use that system. And everything was put under lock and key, the tapes, the reports, and so on. And about, I, I can't remember, three or four days later, there were a couple of chaps uh, came down, uh, and I was introduced to them. I wasn't given their names. They were wearing suits, but they were in the boss's office, and so therefore one accepts that he's vetted them and cleared them. And they went through it in detail with me and my report, and they said, well, that's it. You know, don't say anything, because this is um, under investigation, which is fine. We all shut up. And uh, four years later, I'm based in East Anglia, uh, at a place called RF Wallisham, near Bent Waters and, and Woodbridge, U.S. Air Force bases. And I get called in one day to the um, station commander, who knew nothing about this incident. And he said he'd had a communication from the Ministry of Defence to say that uh, nothing could be uh, ascertained or proved, and that was an end of it. And that was all. Your particular reaction, your personal reaction, having been exposed to this really, really unusual encounter, had you read anything about UFOs prior to this? So I have to say that on? I have, uh, uh, yes, I, 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 I've um, always been interested in astronomy in a basic way uh, and so on. I mean, for instance, there was a book by a man called Eric von Daniken. And he wrote Chariots of the Gods, which I didn't sure. altogether believe in. Uh, I am skeptical because I try to keep an open mind. But the one thing that he did hit me with uh, was the forward of his book. And he said that if the human eye could see a million stars in the night sky, and only 10% of those were like our Milky Way, and only 10% of those had a sun like ours, and only 10% of those suns had a third planet from the Earth, uh, from the sun, um, what's to say that there isn't life out there? I, I try to keep an open mind. I certainly don't guess, and I don't really believe, I have to say, but when you get the inexplicable like this, then it does make me think twice. Alan, the uh, two fellows who were in the squadron leader's office, what nationality were they? Oh, they were Brits. They were dressed in civilian clothes then? Yes. They gave me no indication of who they were or, or what department no. of the government, they nothing. They, they were from the Ministry of Defense, that's all. Uh, I was introduced to them uh, by my boss, who then left the office. Left you alone um, with them, really? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Mm. Um, well, well, certainly that's interesting, no witnesses. Then they tell you at the end not to talk about it, it's under investigation, was yep. their manner intimidating in any way, or was it just sort of business? No, as usual? no, no, no. It wasn't intimidating. It was just, right. you know, quite ordinary and open. No problem. And you, at no point, had someone then subsequently come to you and say, "You cannot talk about this ever." Uh, not subsequently, but on that occasion, these 
to one of the guys said, look, just leave it, don't say anything. We're going to interview everybody else, and we will tell them the same thing. Huh. Did they in any way indicate you shouldn't talk to your colleagues about it, even the ones who were in the room? No, they didn't. Okay. So, I mean, they knew you would talk amongst yourselves, as it were. Sure. Oh, yeah. All right. And that was it? That was it. Okay, having had this happen to you, Alan, where did you go from there to say, my gosh, I think I saw a UFO and I've got to learn more about this? Or did you just sort of let it drift back and get on with your various I, I, I let, let it drift. I, I didn't believe that I, I didn't think that I'd seen a UFO. I, I saw something which I couldn't understand. I did not put the UFO connotation on it. Mm. But... There was all that doubt well, because yeah, it was so unusual, and we had had absolutely no communication from members of the public about noise and types of aircraft and stuff that would have been evident. So I left it. Uh, apart from anything else, I had a career in the air force, and I thought, well, I don't want to damage my professional integrity, so I shut up. And that's happened to other air traffic controllers, civilians as well. What motivated you, Alan, to come forward with this at this time? <laughs> um, I live in Shropshire in the West Midlands in England and there's an absolutely wonderful pub which is uh, 15th century which has got um, a history of ghosts it's a big tourist area hmm. I don't believe in that sort of thing but the Staffordshire Paranormal Society about 10 or 11 years ago decided to come down and, and do a a night watch and see if the ghosts were real. And I was down there having a couple of pints, and I was just talking to some of those chaps, and uh, they said, oh, you know, have you ever experienced anything? I said, certainly not, you know, ghosts, I don't believe it. But then I related the experience on had it softly, and they asked me to write it up, which I did, and that was it. And that was, I say, 10 or 11 years ago. And it wasn't until Philip had spoken to one of those chaps last year that uh, he contacted me in November. Okay, Philip, you want to take it over from here? I wanted to maybe get more insights from you, David, and I about how you reacted to the news and talking to Alan about this particular encounter. Well, I was, I was you know, fascinated first and foremost because um, the, the, the original documentation I had was, was, wasn't uh, that in-depth. But it was clear from the very beginning that what we were dealing with here was a, was a career RAF officer. You know, it wasn't a, a minor player. You know, I think Alan will, will tell you, you know, it was all his career in the RAF uh, as, a, as an officer. Uh, and he even told me off because originally I called him squadron leader and he reminded me he's a wing commander. So, you know, this was a career officer, you know, vastly experienced as well. You know, he, he's the type of man, he, you listen to him yourself. He knows exactly what he's talking about when he talks about the different types of radar systems used, the equipment, how they recorded it, the video. This wasn't a rookie who made a mistake, you know. So when, when someone like that, you know, comes forward, it doesn't matter how long ago, whether it was yesterday or 10 years ago, it's still significant. I mean, we know there are lots of UFO sightings, you know, from members of the public, and, and we don't wish to diminish those. But here you have a, a career uh, RAF officer, you know, on the record, he may not use the term UFO, but that's what it is. There's something explicable on that radar screen that he and his colleagues, not just at that station, but several others, and with, with, with an onboard radar system with an aircraft, 
that could not identify it. This was a man who got a code name from, from when the, the U-2 was coming in, you know, the most secret airplane in the world at the time. And if he can't identify what's on that radar screen, then who can? Quick question, and let's chalk this up to ignorance about the technical abilities of radar systems. Uh, was there any way to gauge anything regarding scale of these objects based on the radar When you say scale, do you mean the size of the object? Yes. No, none at all, because um, a 747 bit was the same as a, uh, a chipmunk or a li um, Got it. Uh, lightning, you know, the, the, the radar return is the same. Okay. As far as the speed of, uh, of ascension and departure, do you have any kind of a track on what speed they were actually doing when they left? But the lateral speed was around about 250, 300 miles an hour, uh, but the rate of climb was, they must have been going much faster than that. There's no way of checking. Um, when you're looking at radar, as long as aircraft are in level flight, you can not necessarily get the right speed of the aircraft, but you can compare one aircraft return with another, you know, a, a, a single engine aircraft turbo propeller will be probably slower than a twin jet and so you can see the difference in their speeds but you can't tell what their speed is and so with these blips uh, we couldn't tell what their actual speed was because it was a plan view of their lateral movement that they were climbing and if you put that in three dimensions then you'll see that they were obviously going considerably faster than 250 miles an hour did they change direction while they were moving? No, they, they, they precisely south-easterly track, six to seven miles separation, every single blip, and the same speed, and the same rate of climb. It was identical. So a southeast track had them moving out into the channel, correct? Uh, well, they would have gone, yes, but I mean, from, from the point that they appeared on radar, which was, as I said, about 40, 50 miles southwest of Heathrow, um, they then appeared there and then headed off southeast for around about 35 miles when they disappeared. They were still over land, but they were heading southeast. Ah, okay. They were still over land when you lost oh, yeah. sight of when they disappeared, uh, yeah. Was there any attempt after the fact, Alan, to retrieve any sort of documents or to attempt to retrieve any documents along the lines of, let's say, a Freedom of Information Act that we have here? I believe no. that you Well, not no. to my knowledge. I, I didn't do it, no. Hmm. Okay. No, you, you sign the Official Secrets Act when you join the military and you sign it when you leave. Let me just tell our listeners. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
we have Wing Commander Alan Turner, MBE, RAF, retired. We call him Alan because he's a really nice guy. And we have UFO investigator Philip Mantle. Now, Philip, having heard about this, did you try to do some work towards independently verifying this information or maybe getting some more background details on it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, of course, back in 1971, you know, in, in the UK, there was no such thing as the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, that's only come out in recent years. Uh, and there's been major news items this year that the Ministry of Defence are releasing bit by bit their files on UFOs to our equivalent of the National Archives. Now, they're not releasing all the documents in one go. They're releasing them, uh, you know, some this year. They're releasing them over the next four years. Inquiries thus far have drawn a blank with the various document agencies. However, there is a mountain of information. Uh, and when the documents were first released earlier this year to a, to a news media blitz, you know, they were absolutely inundated. So we are hopeful that somewhere in the files, when more are released, that uh, I think uh, Alan also and his colleagues put this, all this down in writing and they put it in the official log, that they may well turn up. Um, now, have you ever just asked them point blank, hey, folks, can you confirm or deny that this particular incident occurred? The difficult thing is, it's a little bit like the uh, the American Freedom of Information Act. You have to be specific. Now, Alan's not entirely sure of the exact date. So if we said an incident in 1971, in the summer or whatever time of year it was, the likelihood they'll just say no, because they won't search anyway. We have to be specific. So we've been unable to do that. However, when the documents are released to the National Archives, they're, they're, they're released in batches by their year. So we know it was 1971, so it will probably uh, mean a manual search. And of course, once they're released to the National Archives, the Ministry of Defence then wash their hands of it. You can make all the requests you like, and they'll just say, go to the archives and have a look for yourself. You know, mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons they've actually released them, is to save themselves answering the Freedom of Information requests. Go to the National Archives, look for yourself. So that is still in its infancy. But yes, we have asked, and at the moment we've drawn a blank. Alan, a, a quick question for you. Um, after this incident happened, was there any banter or discussion amongst you and your colleagues about other similar experience to the experiences to this where they said, oh, yeah, you know, this has happened before? Did you get any kind of feedback mm -hmm. like that? Not, not at the time, but I have to say that after the TV program went out in the UK recently, um, I did get two or three calls from colleagues uh, more senior than me who had been air traffic controllers. They saw the program. They met in a local pub, chatted about it, and they started to talk amongst themselves about things that they had witnessed. Um, and bear in mind, these people are rational, professional people who know what they're looking at. Uh, then they see something which they can't explain. But apparently the thing that we had witnessed was um, way beyond some of the things that they, they'd witnessed. Uh, we, we haven't actually, no, we haven't talked about it. So this kind of thing could have been happening quite a bit more, and people were just perhaps not really willing to talk about it. I mean, that's a possibility. Yeah, it could be. Could mm. be. I, mean, I can only talk about the one incident that we saw. Okay, you've never had any other unusual encounters in your lifetime other than this? No. Okay. No. Okay. Now, having looked at it, and we're talking about 1971, it's 2008 as we're doing this show. Today, you retired from the Air Force. What do you think UFOs are? 
<laughs> well, I think it's very arrogant to believe that we are alone in the, the universe. We, I, I, I watch every day the NASA astronomy picture of the day, and after a period of time, you get blasé and you think, well, it's only five million light years away. Um, I go back to Eric von Däniken. I, I, I cannot believe that we are entirely alone in the universe. Maybe the ones out there that are like us either um, aren't as advanced as we are, or probably just about the same level, or if they are advanced, they decided to put a common sense and not get in touch. I don't know. I think it's arrogant to believe that we're alone. What it is, where it is, only God knows. <laughs> I, I think we would uh, wholeheartedly agree with your stance that... Uh it's a bit unrealistic to think that we're alone. Of course, what, what people should also realize, though, is that we're talking about these being unidentified flying objects, and no one here is claiming to know the sourcing of these objects, just that they were unusual in terms of what you were used to seeing on the radar. Yeah. And they... Uh, there was were no not, logic. There was no logic, and they were never identified. No. No. I mean, uh, give you a, a little bit uh, other information. Um, I have been involved in, I mentioned earlier, in this investigation uh, where a pilot believed that he you know, came too close to an aircraft, um, which was dangerous, and he was under control by someone. Um, and the other aircraft wasn't. But we were able to trace that other aircraft and then get the pilot to put a report together so that we could investigate the airness and decide on what procedures need to change or whatever. In other words, there was something not on radar, uh, sorry, on radar, but wasn't identified, but we were able to subsequently trace it. On the occasion I'm talking about in 1971, not a hope. We've not been able to trace anything. Along those lines, Philip, in doing any kind of subsequent research on this, was there any attempt to see if there were corroborating ground-based observations of unusual aerial phenomena that coincide with this? I'm not aware of any at the moment. Uh, I mean, it, it's a long process. I mean, in, in, in 1971, the, the, the UFO subject, certainly in the UK, wasn't big news. Hmm. Uh, and there weren't the major organizations and the investigators. There were some local things that I'm aware of, certainly. The, uh, but they've long since gone. You know, local groups and things that may have had uh, information, they have long since disappeared and they come sure. and go. So trying to corroborate anything is going to be a, a difficult task. What mm. is interesting, and this makes it not beyond the realms of possibility, that we're, uh, Alan uh, made reference to a television show. He and I made brief cameo appearances in a, in a, in a recent documentary series here in the UK. And, you know, I, I was on screen for about 20 seconds. Alan wasn't on for that much longer. However, just that one brief appearance, as he said, brought you know three uh, colleagues out of the woodwork who had seen you know other things. Now, if the news media pick up on on Alan's story, uh, I would be highly surprised if others, perhaps even some of his former colleagues who were there that day, right. uh, don't, don't you know don't don't come forward with any with any case. You can you can name the major ones, even Roswell. It only took one person to break it down, and then the others followed suit. So that may be a, a different way to approach it. That, that, that you know, that may, may give us a, you know a, a better angle rather rather than leafing through dusty files. So we'll have sure. to wait and see on that. And Alan, uh, since you've come forward with this, has there been any attempt 
on the part of the British government to to make you qu quiet about this? No, certainly not. Um, okay. I, I have enough experience of that sort of system. I've got no doubt that if tapes uh, were released, that they would have been tampered with, and I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Or altered in some way. I don't know. I, I think w w what uh, the little I know is people uh, don't. Philip mentioned the Roswell incident. Um, there is clearly something there which the authorities are not allowing to come out. Mm -hmm. And I've got few doubts that that would happen over here as well. Now, when you say you have few doubts that would happen, what do you base that intuition on? Uh -huh, just intuition and, and, and experience. Um, they will make the picture appear the way they want it. And that has always been the case in governments throughout the world. If they're not comfortable with something, they will make yeah. it different. I guess I was just getting at if you were basing this opinion on personal experiences that led you... No, I've had no experience of that, to right. be honest. Okay. All right. Okay. It's just what I suspect. <laughs> okay. I mean, no, and that's well, that's certainly valid. Go ahead, Philip. Another thing that is interesting about what Alan, Alan has to say is the role the Ministry of Defence played at the time. Now, think of the MOD now, and they will say that we have never investigated UFOs. Period. Look <laughs> that now. But really? Even even with people like Nick Pope out there who have... Absolutely. Ridiculous. Absolutely. They'll say... Well, I mean, Nick did it from a desk. Yeah. You know, Nick was... Uh, now... Yeah. Colleagues of mine by the name of Andy Roberts and David Clark found out that in the 1950s, the, the MOD, or the Air Ministry, as it was called as well, had a flying saucer working party. An official. Yeah. With an office, you know, uh, and staff. Yeah. So that did exist. One of the things that came up in the in the recent release of Freedom of Information Act files was that they did investigate certain UFO sightings. They sent people, men in suits, you know, to investigate. Not a lot of the time, but certainly on some occasion. So, you know, on one hand, the the official stance is no, we don't. You know, that have no defence significance. On the other hand, they will send people to look at certain incidents. If you look at the incident in question with, 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 with uh, Wing Commander Turner, here we have, you know, six or seven unidentified targets over mainland Britain that several radar stations cannot identify. They don't know what they are. Now, if that's not a threat, technically, you know, in, in the, sure. to the to the, the defence of the United Kingdom, then what is? You know, exactly. The Cold War was, was, was raging still in 1971, you know, so it, it makes, it, you know, something doesn't add up here. Or, you know, there's, uh, and an interesting comment by uh, UK researcher and, and author Timothy Good about the recent release of the files, that none of those files, when it comes to their security classification, are above classified. What Tim has said, well, okay, that's fine. So where are those that were classified secret or top secret? Well, I've never had an answer. So it may well be that Alan Turner and other incidents were officially reported and investigated that were of such a higher classification that they will not be released. Philip, what seems to be the deciding factor by which the decision is made to send people into the field to specifically investigate hands-on? You said well, that some I mean, cases... It's a good question. I mean, as far as we can tell, there is no, you know, rules and regulations of who, what, why, and where, and when. You know, what would trigger, you know, to send people in the field. 
when you have Nick Pope doing that particular job, and I know Nick well, I used to pester the living daylights out of him when he did the job at the MLD, it was just that Nick took it upon himself to do this. There was no directive as far as he was concerned from, you know, the ministers or his boss or whoever. He just wanted to do the best job he could. So when certain incidents happened, he did exactly as, as Alan did. He impounded the radar tapes. He contacted, you know, this station and that station and so on. But had he just sat there and shuffled paper, as far as he was concerned, no one would have, would have told him to do anything otherwise. You know, I get the you impression know? from talking to you that a lot of the work done by this UFO agency in the UK is basically a paper shuffling operation. They're not yeah. really investigating absolutely, anything. Absolutely. I mean, it's long since been rumored and speculated that the American equivalent, which was Project Blue Book, was exactly the same kind of thing. It was, it was like an official front for something else. You know, it could well be that there are other departments within you know, the, the corridors of power that, you know, have looked into certain incidents, certainly not all of them. It's just, that's just impossible because, you know, Mr. Smith's walking his dog reports a green light. He's not going to have the MOD knocking on his door. However, something of this significance when you've got both civil and military personnel, different locations and, you know, aircraft, then it may well have warranted, uh, you know, it may well have rang a particular bell in someone's office. We'd better get someone out there. You know, and not tell them in a sinister way to be quiet, but, you know, Alan will tell you, he's a career officer, when someone in authority tells him to do something, probably did it. It was just mm -hmm. a way of life, you know, it was, that, that's it. Or not to do something, so it was told not to talk about it, so that's exactly what he did. You know, that's, of course, being a good soldier, and Alan Absolutely. strikes me as somebody who is definitely a good soldier. Philip, I want to ask you, we're going to break for part one of this episode, and then we'll continue with this discussion and some other stuff in part two. But can you tell us briefly what this international UFO conference is all about in a few seconds or less? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's just our way of informing the, 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 the public at large that uh, UFOs are not a waste of time. It's not a silly season subject. It's something serious and worthwhile. And we have an international lineup of speakers to, to, to illustrate that. Who are the speakers? Can you tell us very quickly? Well, we have got Dr. Roberto Pinotti from Italy. We have Haktan Akdokan from Turkey. Uh, we have a number of researchers from the length and breadth of the UK, from Wales, from England, from Ireland. Not myself, I'm missing out this time. But we're all covering different aspects of the subject. You know, information, case histories, first-hand witness information, and, you know, witnesses themselves. Alan Turner is, is, is one, uh, and we have a number of others as well. And we even have a serving police officer who, who looks into just purely that, police officer sightings. Uh, and that's Detective Constable uh, Gary Hesseltine. And Gary's going to give a presentation about official sightings by, you know, the, the thin blue line. You know, Britain's finest, the, the police force. Well, if your appetite is whetted for the International UFO Conference, we'll tell you more about it and a lot more on the other side of the Paracast. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash 
Tonic, again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yeti. We're back with UFO researcher Philip Mantle and Wing Commander Alan Turner, MBERAF, retired. And we're happy to say he lets us call him just plain Alan. Now, Philip, we were talking about the International UFO Conference before. Now, this year it's going to focus primarily on European-based speakers, not USA-based speakers. That's correct. I mean, I mean, last year we we, um, we did a Roswell special, uh, which had been the 60th anniversary of the Roswell incident. So, the majority of our overseas guests were from the United States. So, you know, this year there's a number of reasons why we we haven't invited anyone from the United States. We want to keep it fresh. Keep it different. We loosely theme the conference every year. This, this year is Close Encounters. Uh, and there's a cost factor involved as well. I mean, since last year, the oil prices have, have escalated. Cost of airfares and things of like that have gone through the roof in certain areas. So we, we had to look at that as well. Um, so this year it's purely European. Uh, and uh, again, many of the speakers that, that we will have uh, on the podium, like Alan, have uh, not uh, spoken either in public or in the UK before, so it was something fresh and something new, both for the people in attendance, for the news media, and so on. Uh, and the reason we put the conference on is, is plain and simple: it, it, it's, 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 you know, just to show that UFOs are not a silly season subject. Uh, they are. We do take it seriously, uh, and there is something to this this phenomenon. Uh, we don't try and indoctrinate. You know, we, we're not going to be put up on our on the podium saying that you must believe. There will be a wide variety of presentations from across the spectrum, and you can make up your own mind. You can say, well, you know, Alan Turner, that was fascinating. And you can say, you know, the next one, well, I, don't, I don't know about that. But you can make up your own mind. We're not out to, you know, to brainwash anyone. But here in the UK, it's only last year that, as far as the news media is concerned, they were saying, the UFOs are dead. They do not exist anymore. Nobody reports them. You know, <coughs> UFO sightings are, uh, are, are an all-time low. UFO groups are going out of business. But here we are, you know, 12 months later, this summer, we've been absolutely inundated. And, you know, the news media are saying, well, perhaps there is something to this after all. You and I probably know that the, the, the phenomena goes in peaks and troughs. This year has certainly been a peak. And um, hopefully, you know, we'll capitalize on that as far as the interest in the conference is concerned. People's appetite will have been wet by what they've read in the media. But they'll be able to come along and listen to people like Alan and, you know, ask questions as well, you know. Had it not been for last year's conference, I would never have heard about Alan. So, you know, so there's a, there's a wide variety of, of, of why we have the speakers and why we have a conference in the first place. But it's basically just a public information, if you like. Now, uh, uh, Philip, here in the States, with the majority of these UFO events, conferences that are put on, there is a lot of cross-contamination between the relatively sober UFO topic and aspects of the New Age movement that seem to intersect. Everything I've read about the UFO Congress in, in Nevada makes it sound to me like just a ridiculous circus um, be, because there is just such a huge amount of uh, content relating to, oh, the Space Brothers are here to help us evolve, or you know they'll throw 2012 in there. Please tell me that in the UK that you are being more intelligent than this and keeping the new age element out of it. Is that a correct assumption on my part? No, that's perfectly correct. I mean, there are no 
New Age type presentations at our conference at all. Excellent. Uh, you know, I don't know if Alan's New Age. <laughs> certainly no. not. Down it. Certainly not. New, you might go to a new pub, but certainly not New Age. I <laughs> mean, <laughs> one of our other, you know, presentations is Detective Constable Gary Hesseltine. Gary is a serving police officer. Uh, mm -hmm. specializes in UFO sightings by the police force. Uh, and uh, he, he, he spoke last year, he's, he's going to give us an update on, on um, police observations this year. Uh, by and large, the police are those that are out and about most of the time, day and night. So well, now, he takes it very seriously. Uh, now, now, wait a minute. Uh, a quick question, Philip, before yeah. you continue. He specializes in UFO sightings by police officers for the police or no, no, because no, of his is, own interest? No, 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 this is something he does in his own time. Gotcha. But he's had his own sightings. And so Gary thought, well, you know, what other uh, observations have been made by other police officers? So he set mm -hmm. up his own website and encouraged police officers again to go on the, on the record. I the vast see. majority of those that come forward to Gary are not afraid to, 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 to have the names mentioned and things like that. You know, again, they treat it very, very seriously. And, and you know he gets no pressure from his his his, uh, his boss or his or the police force in general because he does it outside of his, his normal working hours of course. Mm -hmm. uh, he works for the British Transport Police, and um, again he has some fascinating encounters you know on the record. And Gary will stand there and he will show the pictures of the policemen you know and name names. These are not all wink wink nudge nudge, you know. Uh, and uh, it's fascinating stuff. It really is. Because again you know. Who do you call when you're in trouble? The emergency services, the police. Uh, they're highly respected members of the community, and, and rightfully so. But, you know, not likely to make up, you know, fantastic stories. And he has, you know, I mean, literally dozens and dozens of, of, of accounts on, on, on record now and on file. Uh, so he's going to just give us an update. So certainly no new age there at all. I, I was about to mention Dr. Roberto Panotti. Uh, from Italy. Uh, a veteran researcher now is, is, is Roberto. But before, you know, the Ministry of Defence here released files, of course, the Italian Air Force released files and several years ago. The one thing that prevented them from being discussed perhaps in England was the language barrier. So Roberto speaks very good English. Mm. So that'll be one of the things he'll be I mean, again, these are the official Air Force files from Italy, which you've probably never seen a British audience before. Akdam from Turkey, he tends to specialize in, in pieces of video. So he'll, he'll show his latest collection of video clips, you know, from wherever. They'll probably be good, bad, and indifferent, but they'll be certainly stimulating. And again, there's nothing new age about it, it's just that these are what's that's come his way throughout the last 12 months or so. And we've got other researchers, we've got even got a skeptic on the line. I mean, that's Dr. Uh, well, it's PhD, he doesn't like to be called a doctor, but he, he is a doctor. He's a clinical psychologist from Scotland. Uh, but he, he cast himself as an open-minded skeptic. He doesn't like the debunkers, you know, the, the late Philip class and the people of that nature who will just dismiss it. Well, he has no time for that. He's, he's not, not, so he's put an argument forward that there is a, there is a role for skepticism but not debunking. And one of the things he said, for example, uh, you know, it's, it's ironic they've got Alan on the phone, but within aviation circles, not that long ago, there were two people called the Wright brothers who were skeptics. 
<laughs> Absolutely. You know, the Absolutely. conventional sign got it Man cannot fly any heavier than air machine. Well, they were skeptical right. and said, yeah, he can, and they did it. It so, still says that in the Smithsonian Institute. <laughs> <laughs> There's a different way of looking at skepticism. Debunking's a different. So, we, we, again, we've got a, a, you know, a, a cross spectrum of presentations. And, uh, you know, I can't wait. The one thing you, you, you can't do with a book or, or, a, or a television documentary, of course, is, is, is ask questions. So the audience yeah. will be able to, to listen to what Alan has to say, just yeah. as you've done this evening, ask him some questions. Yeah. We also, the, the hotel that we, that we have the, the conference in, we, you know, there's a social gathering. Um, the first thing Alan asked me was, you know, is there a bar there? No, I'm only kidding. But, you know, we can meet, we can meet in, a, in a, a social environment as well and discuss the various aspects or, or particular encounters or sightings or the subject in general. So it's not just the presentations on the stage that weekend, it's the whole event over the whole weekend. Yeah. And um, we're, looking, we're yeah. very much looking forward to it. What do you expect the turnout to be at this event, if we may inquire? Well, hey, it's not a huge venue, but uh, we'll, we, you know, if it's anything of, of last year's to go by, we'll have around about 500 people there. Jeez. That's enough. All right. That's, That's enough for us. I mean, we've had bigger <laughs> venues in the past where we've had several thousand. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's difficult. Yeah, it's difficult to manage. You know, I work full time as well. I, I'm not a full time UFO researcher. I, I have a job. <laughs> I can't pay the mortgage. So you know, the, the more people we have, the, 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 you know, the harder it is to organise. This is something we do, you know, out of our passion and interest in the subject. So we keep it at a certain size, so it's manageable. You know, it's not a money making venture or anything like that. Although. No, I'm a, I'm a, I come from Yorkshire. We're known as being, you know, tight with our money. I mean, Alan will confirm that for you. So if, if, if we do turn a profit, we'll not turn it down. However, it, it's not designed to do that. We, we keep the costs low. We could have flown some of our American colleagues in, for example, and put the ticket prices up. But no, we've, we've got our, our colleagues from within Europe and the UK, and that keeps the ticket prices down as well. So, um, but, you know, in the past we have literally had thousands there, you know, no, no, no problem at all. We, we, we won't have any problem selling the ticket. <laughs> Where can we find more information about the conference? All the details are on, on, on our website. I mean, it's sponsored, you know, by UFO Data magazine. So it's simply ufodata.co.uk. All the details are there. Uh, you can pay online or you can even download a paper form and send that if need be. So there's a full list of all the speakers, all the time they're speaking, it's all there. Uh, that's just ufodata.co.uk. Okay, we'll check it out. Let's talk more about some of your research, Philip. And before I ask that, though, before we get into that, you have a day job, as some of us do and some of us don't. What is your day job? What do you do when you're not doing this crazy stuff? I work for a bank. All right. Simple as that. I work for a bank. I've worked for the bank for the last five years. So that, that pays the bills, I'm afraid. Okay. Hey, right. banks have money, so that works out. Well, the banks have money, at least in the U.K. I don't know about in the United States. They're, right. <laughs> <laughs> They're an endangered species here. Well, well they'll, they'll, they'll they haven't got any money, but take it from me, they have. I, 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 can, see, I can see where he's going. Might not have, have as much as they used to do, but they, they've got some money. Don't you worry about that. We'll, we'll go knock on their door and we'll say, we know you've got money because Philip Mantle said so. So Absolutely. Hand it over. <laughs> Quick question here about this conference and also uh, UFO Data Magazine now. This is all English content in the English language. I've never heard of UFO Data Magazine here in the States. I've never seen it on a newsstand ever. Not available on the newsstands. I mean, we don't have a publisher. 
Oh. We publish it ourselves. I mean, it's professionally published, don't get me wrong, it's not something we do on a little machine in the back room. Uh, mm -hmm. The content of the magazine is, is international. It's not just from the UK. Uh, being honest, it's mainly UK and American because, that's the, you know, the language barrier plays, sure. plays a big sure. part. But we do have, you know, information from other parts of the world, so it's not predominantly just the UK. Our editor is a, is a chap called Russell Callahan. Now, Russell was the son-in-law of Graham Birdsell. Well, Graham used to run UFO magazine, which was available on the newsstands in many different parts of the world. Graham unfortunately died suddenly a few years ago. Uh, Russell ran what was UFO magazine as the editor for about six months after Graham's death, and then Graham's wife closed the magazine down. So there was a gap in the market, so to speak, we started the magazine, you know, as a website to begin with, and then, you know, just started printing it ourselves, but then last year, had it professionally printed, so it, it is done professionally, it wouldn't look out of place on the newsstand, it would, you know, so it's only available on, on subscription at the moment, um, unless there's any prospective uh, magazine publishers out there who are interested. But we decided to go down that route, it, it was a, a financial gamble, because we had no backers, uh, it was money out of our own pockets, so to speak. And uh, again, it, it's not a money-making venture. As so long as we don't lose any money, we're quite happy. Mm -hmm. um, but um, you know, again, you know, via the website, if people want to, to subscribe, they can from anywhere in the world. It can be done via various means. Uh, it's all it's all on the website. So you know, there's international content in there, and it can be you know you can get it online, but um, not in the newsstand at the moment, unless there's anyone interested. <laughs> we'll let you know if we find anyone. Philip, what attracted you to the crazy UFO business? And it is crazy, and before I let you answer that question, this is the cliffhanger. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to UFO investigator Philip Mantle and Wing Commander Alan Turner, MBE, Royal Air Force, retired. We just call him Alan. Okay, Philip, how did you get involved in this crazy business? Well, I mean, as far back as I can remember, um, I've always been interested in all things paranormal. As a, as a, as a young lad, a, a young boy, I, I was fascinated by you know ghosts and things of that nature. As a teenager, I used to attend the, uh, the Spiritualist Church, didn't find an awful lot in that, I have to be honest. For example, you know, what we used to come back off of summer holiday at school and the teacher would say, you know, 
give us a talk about what you did during the holidays. People talk about playing football or tennis or whatever. I talk about ghosts. Uh, it didn't do an awful lot to attract the girls, I can assure you. But <laughs> sort of running in tandem with that, I was always interested in, in the space program as well. I mean, I was you know, fascinated by the moon landings and, and, and the later missions. And about 1978, I was actually in Wiltshire uh, with, a, with a friend. We were, we were members of the uh, British Astronomical Association at the time, and we were using, or we went to use a, a homemade telescope or a little observatory at Chapel It was cloudy this night, so we couldn't use it, and I was reading a book, and it, I don't know what the title of the book was, and it, it basically had one chapter about UFOs, dismissing them, but it mentioned the market town of Warminster, which is in Wiltshire, and it wasn't too far away, so we had nothing better to do, so we drove into the town. We found this local hillside, this vantage point called Cradle Hill, that was mentioned in the book, and stood there, you know, and we saw these strange lights. Now, they could have had an explanation, but, you know, it, nonetheless, that sparked the interest. There wasn't an obvious explanation at the time. I didn't know that... The, the, that particular area was a big military area at the time. There could have been flares or whatever, but nonetheless, it triggered the, the interest. I, I wrote to a UFO group, assumed, you know, rather naively that they'd be able to provide me with all the information I needed, and of course they couldn't. I always had an inquiry in mind, and I just wanted to find out more myself. So here I am, you know, 30 years later, still trying to find out more. I've, I've certainly had some of the... Uh, the questions answered, but, but by no means all of them. And as I got more involved, I, I just became more and more fascinated with the whole subject. It, it's, it's as simple as that. Well, it's certainly one way to get involved in it. Now, have you had any group of UFO-related encounters yourself or general paranormal encounters? Um, the only UFO sighting that, 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 that I can say I couldn't find an explanation for took place on July the 23rd, 1984. So I've been involved for about, you know, four or five years by this time. Uh, I, I finished work late one evening. It was a, a night. We did have a summer that year. <laughs> Alan knows what I mean. It just rained all, all, all yeah. year. I was driving home about, you know, 9.15 in the evening. Uh, it was one long straight road to where I lived with my parents at the time. And it's a nice orange glow in the sky. And I saw this big light and you shouldn't be there. I put my little car in as fast as it would go. Now, where I used to live, it was on the top of a hill. There's a valley in between, which is the city of Leeds, and then there's a hillside opposite. Above the hillside, it was two big, luminous lights, fairly wide, just hung there. You didn't have to bend your neck. You could see them, and they just disappeared before my very eyes. I mean, gone. Didn't go up, down, left, or right, just gone. And as soon as I got in the house, the telephone was ringing. Other people had seen it. Colleagues driving home from work, you know, similar routes, sorry. <laughs> and it was there for, a, you know, across the sort of the northeast of England, north of England, on the east coast across to where I live, for about an hour and a half. Came in off the coast, came across the Humber side, as we call it, crossed into to, uh, West Yorkshire, where I live. Uh, over into into North Yorkshire a little bit, and then seemed to turn and go back. We we found this out after a, you know a lengthy investigation and plotting other sightings, uh, and we could never find an explanation for it. You know, there was no aircraft, no helicopters, and so on and so forth, and none of those disappeared, of course. So that's the only thing out of you know down the years that, that you know nothing spectacular, but it it still puzzles me as to, as to what it may or may not have been. And it, and it wasn't on radar either, because on the opposite hill was uh, Leeds Bradford Airport. And uh, they, they had nothing on radar, and they certainly didn't know what it was either. 
So that's the that's the only thing, Jane. Okay, now let's look at where this has taken you. What do you think they are? Are they spaceships, interdimensional travelers, crypto terrestrials from Earth, or something we can't even figure out? I think it's it's the latter. I mean, I think uh, if you look at any of the theories for a particular incident or the UFO subject in general, I mean, you can cherry pick sightings and encounters that will fit into any theory, but none of them, mm. if you perfectly honest, seem to fit, you know, hand in glove. They don't fit it perfectly at all. I mean, whatever this phenomenon is, it's something, it's an old creature, but really, really bizarre. I mean, it may well be mm. what we're seeing is not of this earth, but, you know, is it, is it spaceships in the, in the, in the tinderless mm. term? I'm, I'm not sure. The strange thing about it is it there are times when the phenomena appears physically real, like the things caught on radar that, that, that Alan saw, or they will leave traces on the ground, or things of this nature. But on other occasions, you know, it, it seems paranormal. You know, it, it, it's, it's not physical, it's not there. What puzzles me is, well, I, I haven't been involved in, in, in the subject that long, that big year. Now, where, when I used to live, when I was born, was in a, a, a mining town. My father worked down the coal mines all his life. So it was a little mining village that I lived in. Now, in, I was all, your, your father either worked in the mine or the mill. That was the kind of area. In 1980, in the summer, from another mining town, not too far from where I used to live, a lady phoned me and said that uh, in broad daylight, she and her children had seen this thing. So I went to interview her. She lived in an elevated house, so Two fields, literally, next to where he lived. The children were playing out. Saw this large thing descend at an angle, stopping me down, and just fall to the ground. Now, she never called it a flying saucer or a spaceship, because it was like a Mexican hat. They took off to go and have a look, and at one point they walked down a small dip, and they lost sight of it. They came up the other side uh, to a fence, and now there's several tall men, all in white suits, seem to be doing things. These men walked behind this thing, and off it went, gone. No, this lady was, you know, her husband worked down the mines. She wouldn't let me take a photograph, didn't want any publicity. And the curious thing is, where this incident took place is right next to one of the, between two of the major motorways in, in, in that part of it. We've got the M1, the M62, they're both sort of very, very, and, but nobody else saw anything. This is a beautiful summer's day. I can't understand that. You know, it really puzzles me. So in one hand, it, it seems physically real with humanoid figures. But then it disappears into thin air, you know, over over a, a major motorway network, and nobody sees a thing. So, they, you know, that, that's asking questions. I don't have the answers to that. It's, it's just a puzzle. I know what it's not. I think I know it's not delusional. I know it's not all mad people. And I know it's not, you know, conventional aircraft. Although some sightings may be experimental aircraft. I'm talking about the things we can't get to grips with. So I found answers, but more of what the UFOs are not, rather than what they may or may not be. But again, I would just encourage people to, to look further themselves and, and come to their own conclusions. Um, I, I'm not, you know, I don't consider myself an expert. I, I may know a lot about the subject, but I don't think you can be a, a, an expert of something that's unexplained. You, you no, you're that, an expert, that. you have an answer. I don't think anybody has any answers. Hey, exactly. And... Um, but I know it's not a waste of time, I, mm. you know. From that yeah. day, I interviewed that lady and her children way back in 1980. I knew it wasn't a waste of time. And I think history will be our judge. Uh, it's the same with the people, again, not that long ago, who 
who said that stones are falling from the sky, and the scientists said, no, it's impossible, stones cannot fall from the sky, because they do, meteorites. So whatever the UFO phenomenon is, I think it's important that we document it as best we can. Future science, probably could even not be a science that we haven't invented yet, another branch of science, will come up with the answers. So unless we document it, then they won't. So a bit of a long-winded ex- sort of explanation, but that, that's, that's me. Let me ask another question of Alan. Alan, I know you've been listening yeah. patiently here, and I wanted to have you answer another question here. Now that your experience has become a public matter, you're doing presentations on it, where do you intend to go from here? You're retired from the military. You're in private life now. What do you plan to do to find out more about possibly what happened to you then and maybe just in general about UFOs and other stuff? Well, I don't think there's anything that I can do about what we saw. Um, I am, like Philip said, I keep an open mind on it because I don't know what's going on. Um, something Philip said it might be worth uh, supporting here. I have a friend, uh, we, we run deer stalking courses in the UK, and this chap, I won't mention his name, is ex-Special Forces. He is not given to uh, delusions or anything like that. Um, he's been in unusual situations, as you can imagine. But he goes out three to four nights a week lamping for foxes. And I know that this chap has seen, on three occasions over the last 20 years, Rather similar uh, instances that Philip has mentioned, uh, and this chap has absolutely no explanation for it, but he keeps an open mind. He would like to know more, as I would like to know more, but all we can do is keep an open mind and not allow it to become cluttered with other people's views. I mean, I don't know, you heard about the CERN project in Geneva. That, yes, uh, was supposed yes. To, yeah, and uh, the, the chief executive said on British television, the reason we're doing it is because we want to know. And I think that sums the whole thing up. Well, sure. One of the most basic aspects of humans is that they're inquisitive. We're inquisitive. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we do want to know what this is about. And in yep. fact, as we've said on the Paracast before, there's a very, very good likelihood that we in our lifetimes will not ever come to any real understanding of this. But for many of us who have had personal experiences with this realm, we don't understand the lack of inquisitiveness and curiosity about this, <laughs> as so many exactly. people seem to have, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and that drives so many of us. We, we, we want to understand, or we feel we should make the attempt, even if the possibility of understanding, as time goes by, seems to be more and more elusive. And it does look like a lot of people come into this field with uh, maybe good intentions, and gradually either burn out on this topic and realize yeah. that, that you just, I mean, John Keel is probably a great example of someone who mm-hmm. spent a huge amount of his life looking into these topics and now in an advanced age, uh, he doesn't want to talk about this anymore. He's done with this. No, I, and I think that's terribly sad. Um, yeah, I mean, three school years in ten is the life of a human, so it says. Um, but if you look at the life of the planet Earth uh, and so on, it's been around for millions of years. Um, there used to be a thing on British television, and this might put things in, into context a little. 
and on the 31st of December, just before New Year, um, they would put on this um, film, lasted about 10 minutes, and it summed up the life of the Earth in one calendar year. And human beings appeared on the sort of 15th of December, like the first 11 and a half months of the year, there was nothing other than just the year. And it was, wasn't until the last 30 seconds of the 31st of December that all of a sudden we had things like aviation and um, flying and jet aircraft and my God, we landed on the moon. So uh, the whole thing accelerates and the way things are going at the moment, I, I don't think it will be, certainly not in our lifetime, but it will be a rather infinitesimal amount of time before we start learning what's going on elsewhere. I don't think we can do anything other than keep an open mind and plug away at it. Hey, I'll tell you what, keep an open mind about this. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I. Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Airy Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Airy Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.airyradio.com. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're talking to Philip Mantle and Wing Commander Alan Turner, MBE, Royal Air Force, retired. And he's coming up with a lot of interesting suggestions here. And I wanted to throw out this gentleman for discussion. We hear the word in the USA, disclosure. People thinking that the military authorities, the CIA, British intelligence, whatever, they know the secret about UFOs and they're not telling us and the purpose of disclosure is to find out what this is all about. I'll ask you, Philip, first. Do you think there is something to disclose, or are they going to say, you know what, we don't know what's going on? I don't think there's anything to disclose at all when you talk about the, the UFO phenomenon in general. I don't think even the powers that be have the answer, or answers, whatever they may be. They may have a lot of information about particular incidents that they're not willing to talk about for whatever reason. You know, my brief, and it is very, very brief, interaction with the, the powers that be lends me to, to the conclusion that they're as baffled as us. And of course, no major power, and that be that the Brits or, or, the, or, or the US, would ever admit that, that they are not fully aware of what is in their, their controlled airspace, 
uh, they, they could never admit that in a thousand years. And of course, if they have lied about a particular incident, lied, stroke, cover up, for whatever reason, be it, you know, Roswell or any other particular incident, it's very, very difficult, even if it's a, you know, a different administration, a different prime minister or a different president, to then go back on that lie and say, well, we, you know, we really did lie to you. It's very difficult to undo such such a, such an event. Mm. So you know, subsequent administrations, no matter where they are in the world, usually just you know continue with it. So they just toe the party line. So yeah. you know, disclosure is a nice word. I think it's it's a phrase used by people who are wanting to get the subject out into the. Into, and they may genuinely believe that the the powers that be have you know the, the answers. But when you look at the history of UFOs, disclosure is nothing new. It's just been called something different in the past. You know, there was a, a you know a very famous documentary that came out. I think it was back in the 70s or 80s. UFOs, it has begun. You know, and when that was being produced, again, disclosure was going to come at the end of it. You know, the the Air Force and the powers that be were going to show real footage of an alien landing, and, and of course, it never happened. So today's disclosure is just a different version of the same thing. You know, it's a different side of the same coin, but you, you, you know, nothing happens. And they're saying five or ten years down, we'll call it something else. You know, we have a new president, or a new prime minister, or a new law, and they're now going to tell us, and it won't happen. No, it, it, it will not happen. You're reaching for the moon, and, you, and, you get, and it's not there. It's interesting. I think what disclosure does, when the disclosure program happened in the United States, which was all, you know, military officials recounting their, their, their observations, just like Alan has done this evening, what it does do, it, it, it does give the, the subject an air of credibility. And that has to be applauded because, you know, that we do know that people like Alan and others in, in similar situations have encountered this phenomena. Mm. Fortunately, there are some of them who will go on the record and are prepared to talk about it. So mm. that, that, that can never be a bad thing. I mean, what I was hoping is, and I did mention this briefly to, to Alan in a telephone conversation the other day, that if his particular story gains more public attention, then if more of his colleagues contact him, perhaps Alan will point them in our direction, you know, and we'll be able to encourage them to do the same. You know, as, as, as far as disclosure is concerned, I don't think the answers are there, but I just hope more people like Alan and, and around the world, not just in the UK and the United States, go on the record and... Uh, maybe, Alan, you, you point some of your colleagues in our direction. Alan, is there anything you could do as a retired military person to influence other people to present information about these sightings? Obviously, there were a lot of people in that radar room when you were involved in this case. Have you done anything to contact them and say, hey, guys, why don't you join me in this? No, I didn't, to be honest. Um, only because it was a long time ago and it was a bit, well, it was 10 years ago, 11 years ago since I sort of first put in writing. Um, but subsequently, in the last two or three weeks, I've had, as I said earlier, contacts from mates. And what I could do is obviously uh, get them to put down uh, in writing what they have seen. They've obviously seen other things as well. Uh, but they weren't prepared to say anything about the fear of losing professional credibility. Now, in 1984 in the UK, in East Anglia, there was, in daylight, a situation where three civilian air traffic controllers saw something land on the opposite end of the runway, which they couldn't explain, and it suddenly disappeared. I, I know no more than that. Um, but they, they shut up because they didn't want to lose their professional integrity. 
Um, and I think that's at the root of a lot of these things, whether you're an air traffic controller or a pilot or a police officer. People think, oh, who's this nutter? Uh, and so people tend not to say something. So in answer to your question, I suppose really what I can do is by going public on this, I may well expose other people uh, to the possibility that they've seen things they can't explain. And, and I would hope that I can then persuade them to, to get in touch with Philip. And that's what I'm trying to do. do. Gentlemen, do you find that in the UK, though, in general, this topic basically elicits the same quote-unquote curtain of laughter uh, that we, we generally see mm-hmm. here, e- even on mainstream shows like Larry King, where they will supposedly be talking about this in a serious way, but then the show uses graphics that really trivialize and satirize the topic. Is it a similar situation in the UK? Can I go first on that one, please? Since that program came out, uh, with the experiences I and my colleagues had, I've been met with nothing other than, you're absolutely right, there's something out there, we don't know what it is. Hmm. I've not had anybody laugh. I understand what you're saying, but as a direct result of the program, uh, and my involvement with the people who know me, they said, yep, you're right, we don't know what's going on, but let's keep an open mind. No laughter. Only support. Well, yeah, that's encouraging. That's a fair comment. I think that's a fair comment from Alan. I mean, you will get some television shows or newspapers will do that. But the climate in the, in the UK, as far as UFO con- concerned, I'm talking about media-wise now, right. changed not about many years ago, maybe about ten years or so. It changed for a number of reasons. One was Nick Pope, although he's still out the, um, the, the Ministry of Defence, had moved from, from doing that particular job. And Nick went public with his, his I, I use this word loosely, his belief in the UFO subject, you know. He was the man at the ministry who investigated the sightings. Uh, wasn't interested until he, he started doing the job, pretty much. So, you know, and he's, he's a highly intelligent, you know, not a, a crazy man at all. And he'll give you the reasons of why he, he came to these conclusions and which you chapter and verse of some of the sightings he officially investigated. And then so we also have people like from America, we have Dr. John Mack, you know, Harvard professor, taking the subject seriously. And there was a number of others, but this, that just gives you an, an example. So when people like that, who have more to lose than they have to gain by going on the record to seriously study this subject, then the news media took up, sat up, took notice. There was also a very popular TV show that helped, and it was pure entertainment. Which was the X Files? I think David's skeptical. David, please explain your disbelief. Great entertainment. What it did, it raised the profile of the subject matter. It was pure entertainment. It opened up. Talking. Oh no, no. But, but there's one other thing, Philip, on that one. If I might interject there, the, the other thing about the X Files, it, it did show that there were government departments in whatever uh, nation that were not prepared to allow disclosure. Um, I mean, it, it was entertainment, but what it did, it popularised the subject. Yes. And then when you combined it with the serious, you know, I mean, the news media are out there to do a job which is to sell newspapers or make you watch television. But they then realize, well, this subject's really popular. We can talk about it. Yeah. It so happened that at the time you had people like Nick and others 
who were serious people, who did take the subject seriously. And so, it, you know, it, it, one thing led to another. So, yes, there are television programs, there are newspapers that will trivialise it. However, you know, like Alan said, he made a brief appearance like me on a, on a TV show recently, and nobody's laughed at him. You know, nobody's laughed because, you know, he is who he says he is, he doesn't speculate, he doesn't make wild claims, he's not a new ager, you know, or, or anything of that nature. I, I tend to find if you talk to people long enough and, and, and show them you're serious enough, by and large they listen. But there are those who won't, and it doesn't matter what you talk to them about, it could be stamp collecting and they'd still laugh. You know, so, you know, that, that's the last life, I'm afraid. Yeah. So, you know, but we're, we're a bit more conservative, I think, in, in the UK than our, our, our cousins across the Atlantic as well. I think that helps from time to time. All right, David, so, I know i got to ask you now because you were having a heart attack over there and I, a seizure. <laughs> now, David, explain to us why The X-Files doesn't appeal to you. Well, I'll qualify this by saying that back when The X-Files was popular, I watched it every Friday night with my ex-wife. We watched it, and we enjoyed it as entertainment. That was also at a time in my life when I did not talk about this topic publicly at all. I was completely secretive about my my involvement with this topic and my experiences, and neither of you gentlemen know about my experiences, so we won't go into them now. Our listeners know a lot about, probably too much about, some of what I've seen, some of what I've experienced. But really, uh, you know, I understand what you're saying when you when you say you perceive that the X-Files uh, opened up public interest in this. From my point of view, I, I, I have to be perfectly frank about this. I think that in many ways, the X-Files completely poisoned the pool of rational discussion about this topic. It, no. No, I really feel strongly about this. Okay. Uh, the lunatics came out of the woodwork. In the United States... The average American, and, and here now the darts will start flying at me, the average American has a bit of a problem differentiating between fiction and nonfiction when things are presented on television. All right. They, they, I think a lot of people in the United States thought that The X-Files was a weekly documentary series. And sadly, um, what The X-Files did was to sort of take certain memes and, and, and certain stories and run with them and attempt to make connections that may have been inspired by reality, but then went off into tangents that were, were really quite extreme. It's kind of like having chicken soup and then adding a little bit of salt and saying, well, you know, salt makes the soup taste better, and then taking two pounds of salt and dumping it into the bowl and saying, well, if a little salt makes it taste better, a lot of salt will make it taste brilliant. And, and I have a lot of that same feeling about what the X-Files ended up doing. I think that in the end, if you tallied the, the, the influence of it, it brought a lot of people into the topic that had not done any hard work, had not done any real research into what's really going on. As I said, they, they sort of looked at the X-Files and thought it was a dramatization of reality, and I know there are people listening to the show right now who are probably sitting there listening to what I'm saying right now going, well, well it is. It is a, yeah, yeah, a, a but, very but Yeah. That's the thing. Um, that's the difference between the way that program is perceived in the States uh, to the UK. There is, you're quite right, there is a certain insularity in uh, some areas in the United States. Uh, and I've got no surprise to me that some people looked at the X-Files and thought yeah. it was a documentary. Whereas over here, uh, it was regarded as pure entertainment. But it's well, also, 
allow people to open their minds and think of other things that they wouldn't otherwise perhaps have thought of. Well, just before Philip answers, I just want to also remind you that here in the United States, we are currently in a situation where our Republican Party has a vice presidential candidate that believes that the Earth is 6,000 years old. So, you know, we, we, we're having a little bit of, a, of an intellectual uh, deficit in the country right now. And, and, and sadly, it does really reflect on the discussion of this topic. That's why I was asking you about the nature of the, the U.K. conferences, because in the States, you know, you go to a UFO conference and you have people selling vibrators that are used to heal uh, your kneecaps. I mean... Okay, they're not the vibrators you think, but I should tell you, think about this. <laughs> Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Jesus and Louis David Vianney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Lieutenant Commander Alan Turner, MBE, RAF, retired, and we also have UFO researcher Philip Mandel, who works in a bank and makes a real paycheck during the daytime. And now he puts on his UFO mask, and he goes out there. You know, that's another character. And anyway, no, the political craziness in the USA is just unbelievable. By the way, to tell you, David, that particular person who believes in creationism has said, you know what, I'm not going to force the schools to have that, but isn't it nice for the students to at least be able to talk about both points of view? It's like talking about science fiction and reality no. in the same room or fantasy yeah. reality. No. And treating them equally. No, no. Sometimes there are not two sides to the discussion. Exactly. There are times when black is black, white is white, and gray is gray. And... Okay. Again, look, you know, we, we, let's not make this a political show because uh, we, it'll just get very ugly. But, uh, you know, sadly, the intellectual deficit that I referenced before in the United States does really show its true uh, influence when we talk about this topic. Uh, you know, the, the most popular radio show about this topic here in the United States basically is utterly worthless in terms of trying to understand any actual situation, any actual knowledge or wisdom about what's going on, it really treats this entire topic like entertainment. And so basically, you, you have the, the circus atmosphere of a show like a, a dramatization, and then people inject nonfiction into that, and what ends up happening is that real events, potentially legitimate real events, are painted in the same ugly brush strokes as legitimate stuff. 
And the thing is that here in the United States, this is a huge problem for us, but apparently we've been exporting this problem overseas. And given that you gentlemen are, are in the UK, I, I want to personally apologize for the pox, for the cancer called Rob Simone, who refers to himself, by the way, as the Art Bell of London, uh, who, who's an absolute shyster. He's just, he's just nonsensical. And so apparently he has some visibility over in your part of the world on the radio and does this topic no service at all. Does it a great disservice, in fact. So, you know, I'm sorry, I don't mean to react so so. So no, strongly. That absolutely. I, I like that. Um, let, let me slightly digress. Let me ask a question then. How do Americans think about The Simpsons compared with the way the Brits regard The Simpsons? Because over here, it is regarded as, thank God America's got a sense of humor and can look at itself. That's a, I think that's a very good question. Uh, for the most part, I think the perception here uh, among people who have working brains is that The Simpson is a very intelligent... Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a very satirical and, in many ways, very useful and funny look at the underbelly of American society, American mindlessness, consumerism, materialism, you know, uh, all of those things. I think that in, in most circles here, that show is seen that way. Now, mind you... There are some people here in the States that see the show differently. They see it as the breakdown of the American family unit. Mm. Uh, but for the most part, I would say that uh, that you could probably categorize that view as a minority view. Majority view is that it is a, it is a dynamic, entertaining, and very smart television show. But again, this is the country that you know brought you uh, South Park. So, <laughs> so which, And a lot of people feel South Park. Is also a very, I mean, you know, when South Park covered the Scientology thing, it was really funny. <laughs> you don't watch EastEnders over here. Uh, if we make it, we're sending it to you because we'll send our product to any place that we'll accept. <laughs> so, sorry, it's uh, it's a done deal if, if I'm not wrong. <laughs> now, there is a movement, by the way, for the part of the Coalition for Freedom of Information. That's Leslie Kane's organization, Nick Pope's associated with it, to form a new international UFO investigative body. Now, I've been kind of skeptical of this, but I grant them the right to have their opinion. And the world, does it need another Project Blue Book? Does it need another UFO project that may in the end just be another public relations maneuver. Gentlemen, I want to get your opinions. Philip? I'm, I'm not convinced, to be, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I have heard of it, and, uh, you know, it, it's got all, you know, good intentions. But whether it's a, an officially funded organization, I mean, where's the funding going to come from? You know, if it comes from tax dollars from the federal government, then if it doesn't feel, fulfill their the UFO researchers' purposes, if at the end of the day it said UFOs are all nonsense, they'll cry foul again. And it may well do that. I mean, I'm not saying it will, but it could do. Well, you know what? Why don't they just do what a certain political candidate and more political candidates are doing in America now? And that is to solicit contributions privately via the Internet and say, we'll use this. I was coming to that. I mean, I've I've been a part of a a UFO organization, you know, public one in, in the U.K., with its committee and its chairman and things like this, and it, it spent more time arguing over, you know, when the next meeting was going to be, rather than dealing with the subject matter. I found whether it's whether it's a federal or a, 
a private funded organisation. They're in it for different reasons. I mean, they become big fish in little ponds. You know, I was director of investigations for the British UFO Research Association. That was great. You know, I was a big fish in a little pond. And it meant absolutely nothing. Uh, I think you, if, you, if you look at a lot of areas of research, this one could be no different. Some of the breakthroughs have been made by individuals, either by accident or by just sheer hard work. You know, you know the Wright brothers, again, I mentioned them earlier, they were publicly funded. You know, two brothers. Know, with, with, with their own their own know-how so you know I, I, I'm not convinced uh, you know I think this coalition would have an agenda to begin with it would want whoever was paying for it whoever was sponsoring it to confirm what they already believe whatever that is it may well be that they believe that UFOs are extraterrestrial and they would want the you know the funding to, to prove that well you know it, that, that's just a nonsense you know, so I think it's better that, hmm. as we've sort of said throughout this the conversation the evening, is to do your own thing. Not to listen to me or anyone else for that matter, but, you know, there's, there's, there's a wealth of information there. Be it on the radio, be it on the internet, be it in books or magazines or in public conferences or lectures. So there is a wealth of information. I know it's sometimes difficult sorting out the wheat from the chaff, but, you know, that's life, I'm afraid. And, you know, and, and get involved yourself and make your own contribution. And, you know, I'm again, in my, in, sort of in my opinion, we, we won't find the answers certainly soon. So I think it's important that we do document things, that we do recall things, that in the eventuality that somebody in the future will be able to make sense of all this. Well, I hope we do. By the way, we're just about out of time for your session, gentlemen. But I'd like you, Philip, to tell people briefly once again when the International UFO Conference is being held, where it's being held, and how to get more information. Go ahead. Yeah, the, uh, the International UFO Conference, uh, sponsored by UFO Data Magazine, is the 25th and the 26th of October. It's in the town of Pontefract, which is in West Yorkshire in the north of England. All the details about the conference and the magazine can be found on the Internet, uh, simple ufodata.co.uk ufodata.co.uk So again, Philip Mantle and Wing Commander Alan Turner, thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, this is Jeff Ritzman. You're listening to David Biedney and Gene Steinberg on the Paracast. And just between you and me, I think these guys are a cult, so keep your eye on them. Correct me if I'm wrong, David. We talk to UFO people in the USA. We talk to them in Europe. Are the European UFO investigators a bit more level-headed? <laughs> no, level-headed is not what you really were going to say there. Say it. Come on. No, no, no. I'll let you fill in the blanks. You mean like intelligent? We'll go for that. Well, here's the thing. Last year when I went down to Buenos Aires, as I've talked about, I think I mentioned it on the show, I was really very, very surprised and a little, little disappointed in some ways about how I would get into a cab in Buenos Aires and I would start talking to the cab driver. And almost universally, Gene, these were, these were, and they're all men, but these were men who were really bright, aware of what was going on in the world, uh, very astute, in some cases really well educated, but regardless of the level of education, they seemed to be aware of what was going on in the world in a way that I found to be such a, a, a break from the typical interaction with the average American who is more likely than, than not the, to not have a passport, who's never traveled outside the States, who, you know, so many people who never even leave their state 
I have found the same thing when I've traveled to Europe. I have found this when I've traveled to Canada, up to Montreal. I don't know, Gene. I am so disillusioned by America in so many ways right now. And, and yeah, to speak to these two gentlemen is, it, look, it's like when we speak to Klaus Dona. It's um, even speaking to Nick Pope. I mean, yeah, it doesn't give me a lot of optimism for us as a society when you realize that for the most part, there is a dumbing down that has happened in this country. It manifests itself in so many different ways, really, truly. Well, the um, most blatant I, I, example, there's an old phrase, you know, a pig with lipstick on it is still a pig. Oh, okay? You had to bring that one up. I had to bring it up. Okay. And the reason I had to bring it up is because of the way people just twist what people oh. say. You say one phrase, and for the rest of your life... It follows you around. You will die on your tombstone. That phrase will appear. You can't you make like a mistake. You can't <laughs> misspeak. Somebody will get you. They're out to get well, you. It doesn't matter which side of the political <laughs> spectrum you're on. Well, we're screwed. To get you, you and I are screwed because we say stupid stuff on this show every week. So we're hosed, man. That's Both it. of us. We're, 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 we're toast, as they say. And we're socked. We're <laughs> Forget about it. But on the other hand, we shall persevere. Well, it's liberating. You know what? It's a very liberating thing to be free of the shackles of conformity. I say go for it. Look, life is for the living. I mean, I, I'm always amazed how people will just flip over and fall in line. Gene, something that has been true for my whole life is that I have, well, first of all, I've always gone up against authority. My parents taught me that. I've told the story that my parents taught me to go up against authority, to question authority, to not acquiesce to authority, to question it, to confront it. I don't think shit they ever realized that I would turn this around on them and say, okay, well, you're the most immediate authority I have to deal with, so now I will go up against you. You know, they taught me well. And as someone who was raised like that, and also, Gene, I think it's really important to underscore that during some very influential years in my life, I was overseas. And I think, in, in retrospect, it was a really good thing. And mind you, when it was going on, I hated it, Gene. I really hated it. I did not like living in Venezuela. I really didn't. And when I was 16, I left. That was it. I was gone. And I left my parents. I left my family. I said, I'm out of here. But in hindsight, the fact that my brain was rewired to be bilingual I think that had a very significant effect on my worldview. It had a very significant effect on the way that I think. And then also to see that there was this reality of the media inside of the United States and how they covered U.S. news and world news. And then there was the sharp, very distinct contrast to that being outside of the country looking in. And this is something that... I think Americans do not deal with and let's just, you know, let's just get into the political issue here because everything is political and certainly topics that that we are interested in these paranormal topics absolutely have a political aspect to them and a reality to them. Um you know, we are in a situation now where we are in such denial as a country. We have deluded ourselves to the point where you know, I think if the quintessential UFO landing on the White House lawn happened, people would look at it and say, if I'm not there, it's not happening. Well, that's what they say about the moon landing. And we'll explore 
a lot more incredible things out there. And politics, by the way, unfortunately has to enter into it on future episodes of The Political Paracast. (laughs) The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.